Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm. We sure do, we still. Are, we are back. Yeah, we once are. Again, once again, I feel like we've had, I mean, considering that we did bonus episodes, or, you know, just like extra episodes, I guess, more like, mm-hmm. through throughout December... Um, we also did for Thanksgiving, uh, uh, one, I think just one, right? I think so. It was just one. One extra. And then we did one very unique thing last episode. Right. With reading some, some old school fiction. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. I have not gotten much feedback, like positive or negative. So I like have no idea. Right. If people actually did get some positive feedback on the Instagram. Did we? We did. It's fun. We did. And someone on the Facebook, too. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I can't tell if the general consensus was that that was like a fun, different thing to do. Or if people were like, that was really stupid. Don't ever do it again. That's way different than what you usually do. This is not a creepypasta podcast. (laughs) It's true. It's not. (laughs) And it's not. It's not. Except for on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Except on Christmas Eve. Expect an old timey. That's right. Creepypasta. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, I had fun. We may or may not. I'm just throwing it out there. We may or may not have another holiday bonus episode coming up sometime soon. Well, before you spoil too much. I can't help it. Why don't we go ahead and ask the question that is at everybody's frontal lobe at all times. What are you drinking? You know what? Tonight I decided hot tea. Ooh. Was on the menu, so I went with a peppermint wow. herbal tea. Yeah, and it tastes like high school because that was my favorite thing to drink in high school. Really, that's kind of mm-hmm. fun. It's a, a little, fun, little it's a fun fact about you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you? What do you got? I am drinking a uh, a local drink. This is from the Nebraska Brewing Company, and it is their cozy IPA. Which, to be fair, I am not the biggest IPA fan in general. Mm-hmm. But this one's good. Good. I was, I That's was awesome. Like, I was like, oh, we'll take a chance. We'll take a chance here for something that uh, I like a lot of Nebraska Brewing Company's beers, but yeah. this one uh, Surprised I've you. never had. And I was like, I've never had it because I usually don't go for IPAs. So here, right. I, here I am. So the Cozy IPA, pretty dang good. I'm a fan. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Ha. Huh. Well, now it's time for you to really... Pump us up and get us ready for what's coming soon 
You got a feel-good fact for us? I do. This is a nice one. So a marathon runner from London holds the world record for raising the most money for a charity as an individual. Steve Chalk raised more than $3.7 million for the (laughs) Oasis Charitable Trust, which is an organization that he started in 1985 in order to buy a hotel for homeless youth. Oh, my gosh. He now has charities in 11 countries that provide housing, education, training, work, and health care for homeless or low-income families or individuals. Wow. He did the dang thing. Good job, Steve. Great work. That's a lot of money. Yeah. My goodness. So that was, say it again, that was the most. So he holds the record, the world record for Mm -hmm. raising the most money for a charity as an individual. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Well, good on him. Good on him. Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk. That is a feel good fact and you've done it. You've done it, Steve. Steve really did. He really did. He did it. I'm, I'm, I feel really good right now. All right. That's enough. See you guys next week. <laughs> yeah. And with that. Oh. All right. Well, are you ready for the story story? Why don't you bring us along? Really right. uh, drop us on our faces again. Sure. That's, you know, what I'm here for. <laughs> In the early morning hours of Friday, September 14th, 2007, a frantic 911 call was received by operators in upstate New York. The caller was a mother crying for help for her 19 year old daughter who appeared to have attempted suicide by pills and alcohol. As the call wore on, the mother paused in horror as she discovered a note written by her daughter. In this note, the daughter had apologized for a few things, but most notably, she'd confessed to and apologized for murdering two men in her life. Oh, wow. Her father and stepfather. This note was only the tip of the iceberg in uncovering what happened here. So hang on, Kev, because this one's a doozy. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So... I know I just dropped a bomb (laughs) with that intro. Yes. But we're going to start by talking about the mother who made the call. Okay. That was 40-year-old Stacy Castor. Stacy was born on July 24th, 1967, to her parents, Gerald and Judith Daniels, in a town outside of Syracuse, New York. Okay. She also had a brother and a sister. So Stacy's school years were not a fabulous time for her, despite the fact that she actually was a pretty good student, and she had goals of potentially practicing law in the future. But those goals would change in a big way when she was a senior in high school. Stacy met a boy. Mm. Stacy's friends had introduced her to 24-year-old Michael Wallace, or better known as Mike, to his friends. Weirdly enough, Mike had previously been married to Stacy's third cousin, Nancy. Mm. And Mike and Nancy also had a son together. Mike had that bad boy factor, which yeah. is what had driven Nancy and Stacy to be interested in him at different times. Okay. In well, Mike and yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so, sorry. Just to make this really blunt, he is twenty four and she's a senior in high school. Yeah. Ah, okay. So this is this kind of a story. <laughs> sort of. Like it's gonna be just Here's like a bunch thing. of like people being kind of stupid all the time. Is that what's gonna happen now? You're you're not ever going to be able to guess what's happening next until the very end. Oh, okay. All right. You're gonna well, think you know what's going on. And then you're going to be like, what? Okay, then I will leave my opinions to myself for the time being. Yes. Even though I have an opinion about that whole thing. (laughs) Well, also, just as a clarifying statement, Nancy and Stacy were not super close to each other. Mm, Like, they'd maybe seen each other a few times around, but they weren't, like, close. This wasn't like a, as far as from, like, the 
girl's point of view. Okay. There was not like a battle for Mike Wallace happening between them in any way. That whole thing was amicable, but I'll get into more of that as we go. Okay. So it makes more sense at least. Well, good. So in Mike and Nancy's relationship, Mike could be aggressive and sometimes abusive towards her. So that was not a good setup. Mm. These were all contributing factors to Nancy filing for a divorce from Mike. But despite their rough go at marriage, Nancy had this gut feeling that deep down, Mike wasn't a bad guy. They really just weren't meant to be together. Hmm. So at the time that Stacy and Mike got together in 1985, Stacy was about to graduate high school and Mike was working at a manufacturing company that produced equipment for things like heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. They were immediately smitten with each other, but Stacy was definitely more in the mindset of like, oh my gosh, this is the man that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. Like, I love this man mm-hmm. very quickly. They were definitely one of those couples that like they meet each other and they're instantly inseparable for better yeah. or worse. Yeah. Mike was described as sort of like a rebel without a cause. And he loved a, like he loved himself a party. <laughs> he was like, there's a party. I'm there in five minutes. Sure. Every time. Sure. He was definitely a tough guy. And he had a little bit of a rap sheet with charges such as like a DUI. Okay. Yeah. Mike was a big drinker and he could get out of hand when he was intoxicated. Things between Stacy and Mike weren't terrible, but they weren't all rainbows and butterflies either. This would become especially true when Stacy told Mike that she was pregnant. Oh. So Mike bebopped his way out of the picture for a moment. Oh. Even though Stacy was in it for the long haul, Mike was not ready to give up the party life. Sure. Stacy gave birth to their daughter Ashley in 1987, and Stacy suddenly felt a newfound purpose for her life. Hmm. She adored Ashley. And as a young mother, living life with just herself and her baby, Ashley became Stacy's whole entire world. Stacy would say about Ashley, quote, I knew from that minute on, my whole reason for being here was to take care of her, end oh, quote. Yeah. Stacy worked hard at her job and just focused on building a life for herself and for Ashley, and things were going really well for them. When Ashley was still only a few months old, Mike and Stacy decided to work things out. Like, hey, this party life isn't all that it's cracked up to be, and I miss you, and I want a second chance at this. Hmm. So after dating again for a couple of more years, Mike and Stacy got married in 1990 at Stacy's childhood home on Bell Street in upstate New York. Hmm. The wedding photos are pretty awesome, just as a side note. Mike had this, like, awesome blonde mullet. (laughs) (laughs) He's one of those people where you look at a picture of him and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a fun person. Sure. It's a fun person. So, so what, you said it was a, a lot of fun pictures. Like, is it just those like kind of quirks about them individually or is upstate New York really pretty? I don't, I've never been to upstate New York. The pictures that I saw were like zoomed in on the couple. Oh, okay. So just more of their dynamic. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it's upstate them New personally, York is pretty, but is it okay? I, I, I guess I should assume so, but I've just never been there. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Their wedding looked like a fun time. So Mike would still go out and get a little wild from time to time, but Stacy definitely kept him grounded and he kept her young and fun. Hmm. And just like that, Stacy felt that same smitten teenage girl feeling again. And she truly felt like she was living her dream come true. Wow. The family welcomed their second daughter, Bree, shortly after the wedding. So Mike loved Ashley and he was a good and present father to her once he was back in the picture. But Mike loved Bree. They were like two peas in a pod in every single way. And Mike considered her to be his favorite, which I don't love. 
Sure. They don't love that statement. But the good news is that Ashley had no recollection of her dad favoring her sister. She just remembered getting to do so many fun things with her mom. Mm -hmm. So like they would kind of pair off. It sounds like. Yeah. So the two of them would go for drives just for the heck of it. And overall, both girls remember those early days very fondly. (laughs) Things in the Wallace home were solid for a few years. They even shared a family Christmas with Nancy and her two kids. And Nancy was like shocked when she walked in and saw Hmm. how things were going. She was not only shocked that Mike had managed to settle down a little bit, but she was even more surprised at how Stacy seemed to kind of run the show. Wow. For as long as Nancy had known him, he was kind of like this domineering man who stomped around and ran the place. But with Stacy, it seemed as though those roles were reversed. Hmm. Yeah. Interestingly enough. That is interesting. Things would continue this way for several years with no more than the normal little arguments that couples have. However, when Mike started drinking and using again, the fighting became more frequent. About 10 years into their marriage, there were rumors of infidelity surrounding both Mike and Stacy. Oh, no. They decided to stick together and try to work it out. And then one day, Mike started feeling sick. Hmm. At first, he said it felt like he was dealing with some weird flu or just one of those normal bugs that you get. He was super tired and he was feeling like really weak. In late 1999, when Mike was about 38 years old, his health suddenly plummeted. Hmm. He went to his doctor and explained that he'd been exhausted and that there were many days where it felt like he was drunk, but he hadn't been drinking. His equilibrium was off. The fatigue became worse and worse, and whatever this sickness was, it wouldn't budge. His doctor ran test after test to try and figure it out, but there were no answers. So they were pretty much like, sorry, dude, like, go rest and push fluids, you know? Yeah, weird. Yeah, so they sent him home. Family were starting to become very concerned about Mike when he started complaining about pain in his shoulder. They were worried that he was experiencing some sort of cardiac event. So they advised him to seek medical attention once again. Yeah. All of his symptoms appeared to be getting worse. And Mike had also developed a cough and had become very pale and bloated in appearance. So he was like really sick. Yeah. So he's starting to really deteriorate. Fast. Yes. Mm. So fast forward a couple of weeks to January 11th, 2000. Mike was still feeling terrible. And so he was just kind of laying around the house. Mm -hmm. 12-year-old Ashley walked into the living room and saw her dad sleeping on the couch. She recalled that he was making funny faces when he was like laying there and that out of the blue, he stuck his arm up in the air randomly and then he dropped it hard by his side. She thought it was weird, but she was 12. Sure. You know, like what she's not really going to put together anything Mm. that something might be going on, you know. So she had to go get her little sister. So she left and grabbed Bree. When the girls walked up to their street, they saw an ambulance parked outside of their home. Stacy came outside and told the girls to wait with the neighbor until their grandma would arrive because daddy needed to go to the doctor. When their grandma mm. arrived a few hours later, they received the heartbreaking, life-changing news that their father had passed away. Oh. Poor Ashley thought it was her fault that he passed away. So I watched multiple interviews with Ashley, and in all of them, whenever she would talk about that day and like the incident with her dad, she would say things like, I just know I could have done something to save him if I would have known, and I could have saved him, and it was Mm -hmm. my fault, which is like so sad and so not true. Right. Like there was literally nothing she could have done. Right. Well, and what- She was a kid. What would she have known? Right. There's like, there's only so many 12-year-olds out there that are aware of- that kind of stuff going on. And also mm-hmm. like, I don't know, it just, that seems like a, 
Well, the concept of death a lot of times at the age of 12 is very abstract anyways. Yeah, like when like serious illness doesn't really register, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It just makes me sad that she's walking around with that guilt. Yeah. So Mike's cause of death was listed as a heart attack. Hmm. Even though he was super young, only 38 years old at the time of his death, he had been drinking, smoking, and using various kinds of drugs for a long time. So unfortunately, a heart attack was not out of the question. Mm. Trusting the opinions of the doctor, Stacy opted not to do an autopsy. We have a cause of death, and Mike was sort of a private guy in that realm. So the idea of him being cut open, she believed, would have been against Mike's wishes. Mm. And other members of the family were also like, yeah, he would be like real mad at us if he knew that we did an autopsy. So not all of the family members agreed, but enough of them did. Yeah. So the day of Mike's funeral came and much to the surprise of just about everyone, Stacy was like weirdly stoic. The girls had assumed that their mom was just putting on a brave face for them. So did, I mean, pretty much everybody else did too. Like, wow, look at her so strong. You know, she's really holding it together. Good job. So these poor kids, you know, they just lost their dad at such a young age, totally out of nowhere. So when people asked Stacy about her calm demeanor in the whole ordeal, she said that she had made a conscious choice to not act like a widow, but instead she wanted to act like a a mother. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't feel like those things are like mutually exclusive, but like, okay, everybody's going to grieve how they're going to grieve, you know? Yeah. She wanted to be strong for her daughters and let them kind of express themselves freely. Mm -hmm. It it does. I do get where her heart is there, but I just want to be careful to be like, you also can do both. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You can do both very well. Well, sometimes it's helpful to the kids too, to see your parents having emotions about, about certain things, Mm -hmm. especially if it's important, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I get it's, it's definitely, even as I'm thinking about it, I have conflicting feelings about that. Because I want to let people do their thing. Totally. So, yeah, that's. Hmm. I think both are logical responses mm-hmm. most of the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Stacy was really admired for her commitment to her girls in this season. When Mike had passed, Stacy was granted the totality of his life insurance policy, which was about $50,000. Hmm. She used that money to pay for Mike's funeral and his burial, as well as to pay off some debt, and then she took the girls to Disney. Despite the tragedy, Stacy and the girls really grew used to the new norm pretty quickly. Hmm. They were like three best friends. They did everything together and felt like as long as they have each other, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. They were happy for the most part. Unfortunately, just two years later, Stacy's dad also passed away. He had been on his way to recovering from an illness in the hospital when he took a turn for the worst and oh, passed away no. suddenly. Yeah. So this was a really sad time for Stacy and the kids, but the same attitude that they'd taken when Mike had passed was taken again this time. Mm-hmm. Let's do our best to make the most of a hard thing and try to be happy together. Yeah. All was going well, and then Stacy met a new man, David Castor. So David Castor owned and operated Liverpool Heating. Mm -hmm. David's ex-wife Janice had co-owned the business with him because her dad had bought it back in the 1950s and eventually signed over ownership to those two. Mm. The business did really well. They had tons of loyal customers who always had good things to say about working with them. And David and Janice worked well together as a team for many years. David's son, David Jr., would eventually work there with his dad as well. 
Before he was old enough to work, David Jr. would come in with his dad and his dad would give him like little odd jobs around the shop. It was like full blown. This is a family endeavor. Yeah. With the company going well and the marriage going well, this seemed like a solid setup. Uh Unfortunately, in the spring of 1987, however, David got in a dirt bike accident. From that point forward, due to a brain injury that he'd sustained, David seemed to be like a totally different person. He'd become short fused and began treating Janice like she was like a little kid who couldn't do anything right. Oh, no. It would often escalate into regular verbal abuse, and eventually things became physical for a short time. Oh, my gosh. Janice had tried to leave him several times over the course of more than 10 years, but would always end up getting back together with him because she really loved him. And deep down, she believed that he still loved her, too. They tried over and over to work things out, but things were just really rough between them. They ended up filing for divorce in January of 2000, and it wouldn't be until August of 2001 that the divorce would be finalized. David Mm. Sr. and David Jr. would face a unique strain after the divorce, and despite being close for a long time, they got into one final heated argument and stopped talking to each other. Oh, no. It's really sad, and it seemed like the the head injury was really the thing that was unfortunately the catalyst for the whole thing. It's really sad. That's crazy. It's really sad. So David is a single man. He's got his successful business. He's got his hobbies, which he loved, which he loved doing things like riding snowmobiles and four-wheelers and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. He was kind yeah. of outdoorsy. He dated around a little bit, particularly within his own company. <laughs> He'd get all hot and heavy with one employee, ask her to marry him, get declined, and then move on to the next one. Yeah. Oh and then a gosh, new gal dude. came around. None other than Stacy Wallace. Mm. The two instantly hit it off, and by August of 2003, they were married. Wow, that is a very fast turnaround. Pretty quick. Hmm. The obvious next step was for everyone to move in together, which they did, and it did not go well. Oh, man, I would imagine. So David always seemed to be at odds with the girls. Mm -hmm. There was tension particularly around the girls not always cleaning up after themselves, like up to David's standards. They would fight and bicker, and David was just really intense towards them, which that was like not the vibe that they were used to. sure. The marriage itself was a red flag to Janice when she heard about it. Hmm. Her mindset was like, okay, I know old David. I know that he's fun and full of life. But David post-accident isn't this like loving, easygoing guy. So Janice was a little bit suspicious Uh that maybe Stacy was in it for like money and assets, which David had a lot of. Sure. But to Stacy, that couldn't have been further from the truth. Hmm. David was her knight in shining armor, and he swept her off her feet. She was getting a second chance at love and family, and after some time, the girls and David did begin to grow a little bit closer. Ashley recalled David coming to her graduation and shedding a tear when she got her diploma, which like really meant a lot to her. Hmm. So things were looking up. That is, until Stacy and David got into a huge fight. Hmm. The fight itself was pretty simple. David had lost his father in the summer of 2005 and was extremely crushed by the loss. Mm -hmm. It took a toll on him mentally and emotionally, so he got an idea. He went to Stacy and told her that the two of them should go on a two-week trip together, like just the two of us. Mm -hmm. Like, let's rekindle our spark. Like, I know I haven't been fun. I've been sad since I lost my dad. Let's go do this together, me Mm -hmm. and you. And Stacy loved the idea. Sure. 
but on the condition that Ashley and Bree would join them. David was not into that idea. Yeah. This is a couple's <laughs> trip, not a family vacation. I do understand that. I that, understand yes. both. Yeah. I do understand both sides of that. So they fought back and forth for a while until David said, you know what? I'm done here. He told her that she should take her kids and get out. And then he said, actually, if you leave, I'll make you sorry. So like a oh, little whiplash yeah. moment okay. there. That's yeah, a little over the place. So he got up, he grabbed a bottle of Southern Comfort and locked himself in their bedroom. Mm. Stacy didn't really know what to do because it was just kind of like a sudden final explosion. Yeah. But it seemed pretty clear that David wanted to be left alone. She'd like every once in a while go and check on him by listening through the door to make sure he was okay. Mm -hmm. And when she heard him snoring, she decided to go to bed on the couch. The next morning and over the course of the next few days, Stacy let David binge drink and isolate, but would continue to check on him. At some point, the alcohol had caught up with him and he began throwing up like crazy. Oof. He got really sick. Eesh. She would help him into the bathroom. She washed his hair over the side of the tub. She changed the sheets. She got him some cranberry juice to drink and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. She tried to take care of him and give him space to sleep off the alcohol. So she's kind of trying to do like both. Yeah. On Hmm. Saturday, David took a turn for the worst. He actually passed out on the bathroom floor. So Stacy called their friend, Michael Coleman, to come help her get David back into bed. David sort of stirred a little, but it was weird. He was so out of it that he didn't know who Michael was, even though they'd known each other for many years. Hmm. They both suggested that David should go to the doctor, but David refused. Early on Sunday morning, Stacy had heard David throwing up in the bathroom again, mm-hmm. and so she went in to check on him. Yeah. He was like, get out of here. Leave me alone. Get out of my house. Ah, like, I'm mad. Let me barf in peace. Yeah. And like that kind of stuff. So Stacy took the kids and left, thinking that he probably just needed a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot going on in the last couple of days. So let's just... <laughs> Everybody take a breather. (laughs) So on Monday morning, August 22nd, 2005, Stacy went to work and then went home in the early afternoon to go check on David. When she got there, the bedroom door was locked. And when she knocked on the door, David didn't answer. She began to become concerned that something serious was happening. So Stacy called 911. She frantically informed the dispatcher that she'd been pounding on the door trying to reach him, but he was not responding to her. She said he'd been acting strangely since his father had passed, that they'd been in a pretty bad blowout fight. And since she couldn't get into their room, she was afraid he might have done something to hurt himself. Uh Police were quickly on the scene. They tried to make verbal contact with David through the door. And when he still didn't respond, they looked around outside of the house and located the bedroom window. Uh They tried to look inside of the bedroom from the outside window, but the blinds were closed. They couldn't see in. Oh. Yeah. At this point, there were not any other options, so Stacy gave them permission to break down the door. Huh. So the officers break down the door, and there's David, laying naked, face down, and kind of like sideways across the bed, facing the wall so his like back was to them. Uh-huh. They called out his name, but he didn't respond, and when they walked over to him, he was clearly deceased. Oh, man. He was only 48 years old. <sighs> there was bloody vomit pooling under his head on his hands, under his fingernails, and like literally everywhere. Oh my gosh. So taking a look around the room, one of the officers, Sergeant Willoughby, took stock of like the state of affairs. Mm -hmm. There were piles of clothes and bedding that were also covered in vomit. Mm -hmm. There were two glasses, an empty liquor container, and another empty bottle with a white lid on it. 
When he took a closer look at the glasses, Willoughby was baffled by its appearance. In the glass was a neon green liquid, so bright that it almost glowed in the dark. Oh. So, like, what is something, that? Yeah, some. Not great, whatever Mountain it is. Mountain Dew, but then some. Yeah, not Mountain Dew. <laughs> so definitely not something you see in a cup every day sure. is what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. Willoughby checked for a pulse on David just to be sure, but there was none. So it was time to break the news to the wife. Mm-hmm. Willoughby found Stacy outside and broke the news to her. She immediately broke down into hysterics and remained that way even long after the EMTs had packed their bags and left since there was nothing else that they could do for David. Yeah. Willoughby then called in the big guns. So Mm. investigators, forensics teams, he called the medical examiner, all of the people you contact in a situation like this. Mm. Detective Sean Price and the crime scene photographer, Deputy Lawrence Knapp, came in and got to work. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that Detective Price noticed was an empty bottle of prescription medication while Deputy Knapp made an observation of his own. There was a mucousy discharge coming out of David's nose and mouth, which is a common indicator of somebody being poisoned. Hmm. And that's when Detective Price put it together. The empty bottle on the floor was an antifreeze bottle. That's what I was just thinking. And the green liquid in the glass on the bedside table was antifreeze. Ooh. So content warning, this next bit mentions suicide and suicidal thoughts a mm-hmm. little bit more graphically. Uh, this will get brought up intermittently throughout the rest of the episode, just as a heads up. Mm. So investigators believe that David Castor had completed suicide by drinking antifreeze, which we'll talk about some of the specifics of what suicide by antifreeze entails and like what that does to the body yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. But first, let's talk about some of the preliminary findings at the scene. Sure. Okay. Investigators quickly roped off the residence to make sure to preserve the crime scene, which is pretty standard practice. Mm -hmm. David's body was sent to the medical examiner, and it was determined that he had died of kidney failure. His cause of death was listed as suicide. Many of the investigators on the scene agreed that this was a pretty cut and dry case of suicide. Based off of Stacy's initial testimony and based off of the testimonies of Ashley, who was 18 at this point, Mm -hmm. and Bree, who was 14, David had been in a steady decline. The fight they'd had over the weekend about the vacation seemed like the final rock on the pile of stressors that David Mm. was struggling beneath the weight of since the death of his father. Yeah. In Stacy's statement that she'd given at the station to Detective Diane Lashinsky, she managed to give an extremely calm and detailed account of her weekend, listing out what drive-thrus she went to and what she ordered and what size, and she was very specific. Mm. She also doubled down that David had not been himself for about a month. She described him as increasingly angry and melancholy and that he'd been saying weird things in the days leading up to his death. He would talk about burial plots and ask her about what she would do if he died and if she'd be okay and like that sort of thing. She also noted that the choice of antifreeze almost made a weird kind of sense to her. Because shortly before he died, they'd watched an episode of 48 Hours Together where a woman killed two of her husbands by mixing antifreeze into green jello. So maybe that's where he got the idea. Hmm. Which, like, that's intense. Also, I have I have some theories, and that seems very interesting that there'd be a woman with two husbands dead by antifreeze anyway. Mm-hmm. Please continue. <laughs> she said that David wasn't afraid of death and as bad as this hurts, she wasn't surprised. But other investigators, you know, they weren't so sure about all that. Yeah. 
There was something very odd about choosing antifreeze to complete suicide, especially considering that David went hunting as one of his many hobbies and there was a loaded shotgun under the bed. Hmm. Considering the strange method wasn't the only thing that was off to investigators. But before we move on, let's talk about the antifreeze. Okay. So antifreeze itself is water-based, but the biggest concern with ingesting it is the methanol and the ethylene glycol. Uh If you were to ingest a small amount of antifreeze without seeking medical attention, the body begins to try and break it down through enzymes in the liver, which produce what's called calcium oxalate crystals, which form in the tubes of the kidney. And since the crystals are foreign bodies, the kidneys eventually fail. Yeah. That's like a super oversimplified explanation, but I feel like it at least paints a little bit of a picture. Yeah. So the symptoms of antifreeze poisoning include headache, fatigue, dizziness, slurred speech, nausea, vomiting, confusion, rapid heartbeat, convulsions, loss of coordination, and rapid breathing. Mm Mm-hmm. After ingestion, it can take up to 72 hours for kidney failure to occur, and the process is incredibly agonizingly painful. Hmm. Okay. So even though David had been drinking alcohol that weekend, it was obvious that it was the antifreeze that did him in. But why would anybody pick such a long, drawn-out, painful, terrible Hmm. method? Yeah. Especially with a shotgun right there. Right. Something about this case seemed fishy to many of the investigators, and they were even more suspicious when they continued their search of the home. Hmm. So a lot of people don't know this, but it's standard practice to comb through the entirety of the crime scene. So in this case, the entirety of the house, the whole house, in an investigation like this one. They're looking for clues or anything relevant to the case. And so during their search of the house, one of the officers found a turkey baster in the kitchen trash can. Hmm. When it was looked at more closely, it looked as though there was more green liquid droplets inside of it. Oh, no. So it was bagged up as evidence. Uh One other thing that investigators noticed was that there was something almost too obvious about the placement of the antifreeze bottle on the floor. Uh The bottle itself was on the floor right underneath where David was laying, but it didn't appear to be covered in his vomit despite the fact that it was resting in like a pool of it hmm. that had streamed down the side of the bed into a puddle, but it's like totally untouched. Mm. It seems yeah, weird. That's definitely fishy. Yes. So yeah, it was also noted that the glass on the bedside table that had the antifreeze in it was also in pristine condition, which is weird considering that David's hands would have been all over the glass. Right. And you know, there was vomit everywhere on yeah. his hands under his fingernails Should there be any sign, perhaps, that he'd touched it? So Mm. they thought that that was strange. Investigators quickly notified Janice and David Jr. about David's suicide, and both of them were immediately suspicious as well. Yeah. While David had his moments of real struggle, he was not the kind of person who would consider suicide, especially in such a gruesome manner. Other friends and family of David were all very confused about the whole story as well. It was mentioned time and again that David never seemed anxious or depressed. The main stressors in his life were his dad's passing and the fact that he and Stacy's girls were all like struggling to get along together. Yeah, yeah. Those were really like the main things. It was noted that Ashley and David fought the hardest and that Ashley would quote mouth off to him and would often talk about how she missed the days when it was just the three girls and no one else, Mm. which like she's an 18 year old. 
Of course she feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course she feels that way. And maybe if you were like being nice, maybe she wouldn't (laughs) be grumpy at you. Right. I don't know. They all just grumped at each other, which makes me sad. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. I wish it could have been. Everybody was just fine. You know? Yeah. We wouldn't have this story that way. It's one of those things where, um, it almost seems like too normal. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of like normal challenges of life happening Yeah, in all of this. Your marriage is suffering here and there. You don't get along with your stepkids. You don't get along with your own biological kids. You like, lose a parent. Yeah, yeah. All that. Like there's, there's all sorts of. I it's a lot like, of compounding normal life hardships. Yes. But to be fair, the dude also has like a pretty serious head injury that happened several, a few years before that. You know, I'm sure makes that stuff even harder to handle. So, yeah, there's a lot happening right now, too, just like in this story that you're telling that definitely add up to it's fishy and also could be coincidental. It's all I know there's a lot happening. So I'm curious how this is going to play out. So despite everybody feeling a little bit weird about the whole thing, Stacy maintained her story about the days and weeks leading up to David's death. And so at this point, All that was really left to do was to wait for forensics results to come in. Hmm. But before they could continue investigating, something put the brakes on. Unfortunately, when a case is ruled a suicide, detectives are not allowed to use time and resources to investigate any further. So Mm. they were not able to keep digging into David's case unless the medical examiner would change the ruling. Oh, so the medical examiner's like, listen, I don't see anything in my report that would suggest that this is a homicide. So there's not really anything that I can do. Mm -hmm. But luckily, when he was pressed by investigators, specifically by lead investigator Dominic Spinelli, the medical examiner changed the cause of death from suicide to undetermined. That way they could keep investigating and doing forensic testing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And boy, did the forensics have a story to tell. Hmm. The first thing that sent alarm bells off was the toxicology report. First off was the antifreeze. There was barely any in his system. You would have to consume three or more ounces of antifreeze in order for it to be lethal. Hmm. The other thing was that, according to Stacy, he'd been drinking like alcohol for the whole weekend and vomiting violently, mm-hmm. but there was barely any alcohol in David's system either. If he had been binge drinking for several days and then followed up with drinking antifreeze, the toxicology would have shown higher numbers of both substances in his body. Yeah. The next piece of evidence was found on the two glasses by the bedside table. The first glass was the one that did not have the antifreeze in it. Okay. It had appeared as though whatever was in the glass was just some of that leftover cranberry juice. David's fingerprints were found on that glass. Hmm. On the glass with the antifreeze, there were three more fingerprints, but they didn't belong to David. They belonged to Stacy. Oh. It was obvious that David had not touched the glass with the antifreeze in it at all. Oh, not even not even like a partial fingerprint, partial palm print, nothing. Oh, boy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not looking great. Next is the turkey baster. It was confirmed that the liquid inside of it was antifreeze. Hmm. There was no DNA on the bulb of the baster. So like the top part that you squeeze. Okay. But the tip and the inside of the baster, they found David's DNA along with the antifreeze. What? Yeah. His DNA with the antifreeze? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I'll explain more. Yes, please. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. So I, the hunt that, was that's on. Weird. Okay. They got to figure out what happened here. This does not seem as cut and dry as it did at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The new theory told a much different story than the one that Stacy had told. Based solely on the forensics results, David hadn't been drinking copious amounts of alcohol. He had been vomiting and lethargic due to the slow burn effects of the antifreeze as it ravaged his system. Mm-hmm. Investigators believe that while David was in bed weak and clinging to life that the turkey baster was placed into the cup that had been filled with the antifreeze and then pushed down his throat and like force fed to him. Then the turkey baster was tossed in the trash, likely because whoever did this, most likely Stacy at this point is what they think. Whoever this was didn't realize that police would go through that trash on their first part of the investigation. Mm -hmm. So they decided to run a background check on Stacy. And that's when they learned that Stacy's first husband, Mike, had also died at a very young age. Mm. Though his cause of death was listed as a heart attack, police couldn't rule out that maybe Stacy had something to do with his death as well. Oh, my gosh. So Detective Spinelli looked over Michael Wallace's medical records and learned that on the day that he was rushed to the hospital, the EMT and the ambulance noted that Mike did not appear to be having a heart attack. Hmm. He also learned that Mike had no history of heart disease and all of that kind of thing. So all things considered, he was actually in pretty good health for Hmm. his entire adult life. Mm -hmm. One thing that stood out more than the other stuff, however, was that when Mike had visited his doctor, he told the doctor something. That he felt like he was drunk, even though he hadn't had any alcohol. Mm-hmm. And boom, Spinelli's wheels were turning big time. What if Mike hadn't died from a heart attack? What if he also died from antifreeze poisoning? Oh my gosh. Because think about it. Think about the symptoms. Yeah. When yeah. you've ingested antifreeze. All of that sounds like you're drunk, but you haven't had alcohol. <laughs> oh my gosh. Crazy. So on the day of David's funeral, Stacy had carried herself very much like she did at Mike's funeral. Mm-hmm. Stoic, no tears shed, all of that. David was buried on the same plot as Mike. So like mm. right next to each other with a space in between the two men's graves that was reserved for Stacy. Okay. I, I don't know how else you would do it, but that still seems weird. But It's like not in most circumstances. That's not weird. Okay. But like it feels weird here. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> as, as the layers of the onion are peeled back, you're yes. like, mm, don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as time wore on, Spinelli and other investigators hadn't forgotten about the case. And in fact, Spinelli was working overtime to crack it wide open. One thing he looked at was the cemetery surveillance footage. It was learned that Stacy hadn't visited either of the graves, not even mm. once since their burials, which like that doesn't need to mean anything. But with all of the extra factors kind of surrounding Stacy, this did bother Spinelli. Something about it seemed off. Yeah. Another thing that many cited as odd was the fact that Stacy and the girls had completely remodeled the entire house that had once belonged to David, mm-hmm. like immediately after his burial. Hmm. They were able to do this because David had left the entirety of his estate to Stacy in his will. Not a wow. cent for his only biological son or grandchild, nothing for his siblings or anyone else close to him. Only to Stacy. Which she's two for two on that. Both of her husbands Mm -hmm. left their entire estate to her. Mm -hmm. They changed everything and they even got a dog. And it seemed as if David had been all but forgotten by Stacy, at least. Hmm. 
By the summer of 2007, Spinelli had presented his theories on the case enough times that he was able to get a warrant to tap Stacy's home phone. And he was also able to set up surveillance at locations that they knew that Stacy frequented mm-hmm. so they could figure out what is this lady doing? Yeah. So just for the sake of clarity, the initial department in charge of the investigation was the Onondaga County Sheriff's Office. And a lot of the investigation would be helped tremendously by the Onondaga DA, William Fitzpatrick. Hmm. I realize okay. that I haven't mentioned him yet, but he's got a hand in this whole story. Okay. So once Michael Wallace's case was being more seriously investigated, investigators in Onondaga County reached out to the police department that had overseen his death, which was the Cayuga County Sheriff's Office. Mm. He laid down the facts and pushed to have Mike's case looked over again by them as well. The DA in Cayuga County agreed that everything going on here was fishy at best, and it warranted looking into it more, and so they did. Mm -hmm. The next step that was made was a huge risk, because if they were wrong about their theory, this would upset a lot of people. Sure. They decided to exhume Mike Wallace's body. Oh, yeah. That's like a big choice to make. Well, especially considering that they actively all agreed, essentially, Mm -hmm. that like he wouldn't want any sort of messing around his body or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. convenient. Yeah. That's a convenient reason to not get an autopsy. It is. So the exhumation took place on September 5th, 2007 with officers from both counties present. Mm -hmm. So this is like eight years after he's dead, right? About seven. Cause he died in 2000. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. Yes, so Mike's body was sent to the Onondaga County Morgue, where a full autopsy was performed by Dr. Stoppaker, who also had performed David's autopsy. Mm -hmm. When the heart was examined, there was no indication of a cardiac event of any kind. Wow. But when Dr. Stoppaker looked at Mike's kidneys, there was certainly something odd. Mm. Calcium oxalate crystals, an exact match to the ones found in David Castor's kidneys. Michael Wallace had not died from a heart attack. He had died from antifreeze poisoning. Wow. Nuts. Okay. I can't even believe I can't even believe it. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Aww. One other thing that was found in Mike's system, even seven years since his passing, was rat poison. Mm. It was the belief of all investigating parties at this point that they had a black widow on their hands. Wow. Which, since we've never talked about it on the show, I have to be that annoying person that overexplains. Yeah. A black widow is a term for a woman who kills her partner. Yeah. Simple. Next on the ever-growing to-do list for this case was to interview Stacy Castor again. It's like, it just never ends. Mm-hmm. You keep thinking, cool, they've got everything they need, but yeah. they, they don't. Oh, so, really? Okay. Wow. They don't. So, Detective Spinelli heads over to chat with Stacy about the recent developments. Mm-hmm. Stacy was super surprised to see them, so she had no clue that the case wasn't closed. She thought it was closed. Oh. It was a suicide. Okay. They investigated. Yeah. Emmy said that was his cause of death. Yeah. Case I mean, closed. Yeah. Like she would be surprised because they obviously did all that to essentially watch her and yeah. like make sure. So that's the right move. Well, it's also like, a little bit weird, but yes. I'm explaining all of this as though everybody knows this investigation's going on, but really it was everybody first in Onondaga County and then in Cayuga County. Yeah. It's just law enforcement pretty much and some medical professionals. So detective Spinelli told her that the case was still open and he just needed her to answer a few questions so they could close it out. Mm -hmm. So he's playing it cool. 
he started with asking her about the phone calls she claimed to have made to David throughout the weekend that he died. Mm -hmm. In her initial interview, she told investigators that she had called him every 30 to 45 minutes on the day that he died. But her phone records show that she had called him one time from the office at Liverpool Heating. Shortly before calling 911, also from Liverpool Heating, which is weird. Mm. She said she was banging on the door to their bedroom right. and he wasn't responding, but she was at their business. Yeah. Stacy was immediately on the defense. Mm-hmm. She was like, I know I call. I know I called him multiple times. What are you talking about? Give me the phone records. So Spinelli had the phone records with him. Luckily, yeah. he yeah. just happened to have those old things tucked away. <laughs> so he handed him over to her and she looked through the document with all of the phone records and said, I know I called him from my cell phone. And this is just the phone records for the business. So it, you must have just missed my cell phone records. Well, boom. Uh, <laughs> Spinelli pulls out those records as well and informs her they got phone records from the house, the business, and cell phone records. And all across the board, she made one call. One phone call. Yeah. So that's a stupid thing to lie about. Can we just talk about Ooh. how that's a dumb thing to lie about? Yeah. Like, I, I get it that she wasn't anticipating an investigation. But, like, why embellish your statement? Mm-hmm. On something so easy to verify. Phone records are like the easiest way to verify if somebody's telling the <laughs> truth or not. Yeah. They it, don't lie. They just are. <laughs> I just, I, I feel like she must have thought if I just tell a crazy enough story, they won't even like consider looking into it. Right. Which well, is, it seems like when he, when Spinelli had approached her, that's mm-hmm. exactly what she thought. Yeah. So. Yeah. But. In fact, by telling too crazy of a story, it made it very obvious what's going on here. Right. Okay, yeah. Next, Detective Spinelli busted out a crime scene photo. It was a photo of the nightstand with the bottles of alcohol, the glasses, and container of cranberry juice. And so he asked her if she could tell him which glass she'd brought him the cranberry juice in. Mm, Okay. She looked at the photo and said, quote, well, when I poured the antifree, I mean the cranberry juice, end quote. Oh. And then she got mad and started saying that Spinelli was just trying to confuse her. Can we just... Stacy. Stacy, that wasn't even a smooth one. Not oh. even kind of. Oh. He then pointed out that the only fingerprints on the glass with the antifreeze belonged to her. And that was it. Stacy was done with the interview and she refused to answer any more questions. Mm -hmm. That's her right. She's allowed to do that. Sure. But she did have a question of her own. Stacy had noticed that in Detective Spinelli's stack of papers that he had on the table where she was being questioned was a photo of the turkey baster. She asked him, wait a minute, what's that? What's that a photo of? Mm -hmm. And Spinelli said, quote, oh, that's just a turkey baster. And she was like, well, yeah, but like, what's it for? Why do you have that photo? Mm-hmm. And Detective Spinelli, like a boss, said, quote, <laughs> sorry, but you discontinued the interview, so I can't talk to you anymore, end quote. Mic <laughs> 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 drop. Yeah. Which I just thought that was like, I wish we could all have a moment yeah. like that. Wow. It's a very unique moment, and I'm proud of him for doing that. Yeah. So like a totally normal mother, Stacy decided to tell her daughters, Ashley in particular, that police were trying to blame her for killing Daddy and David. But she didn't stop there. 
Hmm. She went ahead and made phone calls to multiple friends and filled them in on what was going on and how she was freaking out because the police were framing her for murder when her husbands died from a heart attack and suicide. She had no clue that they had tapped into her phone lines and were very much listening in on every single one of these phone calls. (laughs) Just. Wow. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Considering how paranoid she is about certain things at this Mm -hmm. point and how like on edge she was at the end of that interview, you would think that that would be something she would consider. Like, I wonder if now I'm being followed or listened to, you know, but I guess not, not everybody's going to, going to go there. Sure. Which is understandable, but I'm just like, girl, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, she obviously just kind of jumped to, okay, what could I do that would give me some backing? It wasn't even necessarily about like combating Mm -hmm. what they were doing. It's more to just have like a, like a, uh, entourage behind you one yeah. of those kinds of things she's just more concerned that's about true. i want these people in my corner which that's really a good point yeah but also it i would imagine that that pans out poorly for her because then none of those people can be witnesses on stands mm. <laughs> so i don't know but we'll see or maybe that's we won't. a good point I, don't know. I feel like that's a good like little psychology thought where it's like in a moment of crisis Mm-hmm. Or in a moment specifically where you're being investigated for two homicides. <laughs> People re- respond to that in different ways. I was, mm-hmm. I'm listening to a different book for an upcoming case. Mm-hmm. And in this, they're very thorough in the mindset of interrogators. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because they have certain questions, certain uh, cues that they look for and listen for mm-hmm. that will tell them, are we dealing with someone who's like, a, B, C, D, E, or are, are we dealing with someone who's like X, Y, Z? And it's sure. interesting how little, little tiny nuances in these conversations can completely change your perception of somebody and like hmm. how they are choosing to handle the situation, what decisions they made and stuff. I feel like that applies here yeah. where it's like you get people that would be like, oh no, they're following me, you mm-hmm. know, who would- right become a hermit until it blew over, hopefully. (laughs) Right. Or you go and you rally the troops. Yeah. So you just like crack my head open like an egg. There you go. Yeah. Good job. And Stacy's clearly the second someone who's going to rally the troops. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's see how that plays out for her. Seeing how it plays out. (laughs) So on Wednesday, September 12th, 2007, Ashley was starting her first day of college courses at Bryant and Stratton business Institute where she was working towards her degree in accounting. Poor Ashley was literally at the sign-in table, getting herself signed in and squared away to begin her first class of the school year. Wow. When a woman who worked in administration came and got her and brought her to a room where police were waiting. Hmm. They explained everything to Ashley from top to bottom. Their theory, the actions that they'd taken to prove the theory, most notably to Ashley, the fact that they had exhumed her father's body and performed an autopsy. Ooh, I'm sure that did not. She sit was well. like completely floored with like yeah. shock. Yeah. And I do not blame her. She could not fathom what she was hearing. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like that was the exhumation of her father's body really kind of like turned her availability off. Sure. I guess is a way to say it. Yeah. Well, so, it, it, that's one of those things like you've already established. That would have been crazy to them mm-hmm. and to him. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like 
Because when you initially brought that up, I just assumed, like, they're obviously going to notify the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, <laughs> it's very obvious they didn't. They which did not. That seems like kind of a gray area in some ways. Yeah, I don't... I'm assuming that it was not... I think that he got... They got a warrant for it, though. Yeah. So, like, they, they legally may have done so, but it's ethically is where I'm kind of right. wondering, like... I feel like you need to tell family members about that. I watched some interviews <laughs> with the different investigators that were there for that. And they all had explained having this moment where they're like, what are we doing? Hmm. Like, are we making the biggest possible mistake we could ever make in our careers? Yeah. They or, would all get fired if that panned out poorly. If they were wrong. Yeah. The family would need to be notified. Probably. Yeah. I'm assuming. But like that could have gone real wrong if, really, if the yes. theory was not right. Yeah. So. That's intense. And I do not blame Ashley for being freaked out. Yeah. So she told them that they were wrong and she quickly walked off and called her mom. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to Stacy, still police were able to listen in on this call as well. Ashley said to Stacy, quote, mommy, they came to my freaking school. Hmm. Stacy asked if she was okay. And Ashley said, I'm freaking out right now, but I'm going to be fine. She couldn't believe that they dug up her dad, mm-hmm. which is like poor Ashley. Gosh. Yeah. Stacy asked Ashley if she wanted her to come pick her up from school, but Ashley declined and attended her classes. Well, that's good. Once again, like a boss. Yeah. Some of the people in this episode, I'm just like, look at you go. So Stacy came and got her when her classes were over for the day. On the drive home, they were both very upset and kind of getting each other riled up. Sure. Yeah. That's when Stacy suggested that the two of them should just get drunk about it. It was a little weird, but Ashley was kind of like, cool, like, heck yeah, my mom's going to let me have some alcohol. <laughs> At this point, she was 20 years old, and so what 20-year-old isn't going to think that's cool, you know? Yeah. She's like, heck yeah, mom, like, let's go. Well, with your mom, that's. I wonder if that is cool. I don't know. I don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> about anything. I'm 20 years old, I'm going to go get drunk with my mom about something. I Yeah, right mm. out of the gate, I'm like, well, that sounds kind of lame. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> Whatever. Your mom is so fun. <laughs> when you're 31, you have no qualms about well, it. Well, that's a little different <laughs> when you're 31. This is the coolest thing. Uh, so they stopped at the store and picked up some Smirnoff watermelon and went home. Stacy poured a drink into a glass for Ashley, and then Ashley had a few more drinks right out of the bottle. She started feeling sick, so her mom suggested that she should take this pill and sleep it off. You'll be fine. Oh, I don't like how this is going. So when Ashley woke up the following day, she felt worse than she had when she'd laid down the night before. What? She decided she still needed to go to her morning class since school just started. And she did not want to start the year off by missing her first day of that class. Yeah. So she got home before noon and Stacy suggested that they should drink again. What? This time Ashley thought this is weird because it's like early in the day. But Stacy insisted. She sent Ashley down to finish a quick load of laundry so they didn't have to worry about it later after they'd been drinking. She then made them both screwdrivers, orange juice and vodka, a classic. Mm -hmm. When Ashley looked at the drink, she noticed that there were little bits of something in her glass. She pointed it out to her mom, who said it was just the spice she put in the drink. So Ashley was not a regular drinker. She was not aware that there was not a thing. There was not spice in a screwdriver there's no spices in a screwdriver but despite it tasting and looking gross she took a few sips she told her mom like this is really nasty i don't think i want any more of this 
But that's when Stacy showed her a neat little trick. She told her daughter that if you stick the straw towards the back of your throat and drink it as fast as you can, you can't even taste it. A short time later, Ashley was feeling terrible. So she went to bed. Police listened in on yet another phone call. This time, Ashley's boyfriend, Matthew, had called, asking if everything was okay. He said that he'd tried to call Ashley's cell a handful of times, but she wasn't picking up. Hmm. Matthew didn't say this next part to Stacy, but he'd actually driven over to check on things. Hmm. And he noticed that the lights in the house were on, but not in Ashley's room. Stacy informed Matthew that she was totally fine. She's just sleeping off some sickness and she can't be bothered at the moment. Matthew told her that he thinks that maybe he forgot his ATM card in Ashley's room. So he asked Stacy if she could go check. That way, Matthew wouldn't accidentally wake her up. Yeah. So Stacy didn't know that Matthew was outside, like I said, and told him that she looked but couldn't find it. Immediately, Matthew knew this was a lie because he was sitting outside. The light to Ashley's room never came on. Mm Mm-hmm. While Ashley was incapacitated in her bedroom, Stacy was throwing a little party for some of her friends in the backyard at this time as well. What? Something was very clearly off and more and more people were on to it. So this is just imploding on her. Absolutely chaotically imploding. Oh my goodness. I don't understand any of these choices even a little bit. Yeah. So at 6.30 a.m. on Friday, September 14th, 2007, things would hit an all-time level of crazy. Mm -hmm. So Bree was really worried about her sister. She hadn't seen her since the morning before, and so she went to go check on her. What Bree discovered was her sister laying in her bed. Her mouth and eyes were wide open with a look on her face that was both terrified and glassy. Mm. Bree tried talking to her, but Ashley didn't respond, so she started saying her name over and over until she was eventually screaming it. Stacy came flying into the room and called 911. She told the 911 operator that she thought her daughter had taken some pills due to the empty pill bottle she found in the room. No. Ashley began violently vomiting, and Stacy did what the operator was instructing her to do. She put her on her side and informed the operator that she'd taken a whole bottle of Ambien and possibly had also drank an entire bottle of vodka because she'd also found an empty bottle of vodka nearby in their bedroom. So like, yikes. And that's when Brie discovered the note. Mm -hmm. There on the head of the bed was a piece of paper, which we'll talk more about that in a minute. So Ashley was taken to the hospital, and when she arrived, she was unresponsive. Mm -hmm. Hours later, Ashley awoke to a whole slew of questions from police. What kind of pills did you take? How many pills did you take? What did you drink? Ashley was super confused. She hadn't taken any pills and she had no clue what was even going on. Yeah. The officer informed her that she left a suicide note detailing how she intended to complete suicide and that she had killed her dad and stepdad before attempting to take her own life. Ashley told them, I didn't attempt suicide. I didn't take any pills, and I definitely didn't kill my dad or my stepdad. Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. When the heat was on, her mother had typed up a suicide note framing her daughter for her crimes before attempting to poison her own child. Oh, my gosh. And also, before I forget, the doctor informed Ashley that her sister... If her sister Bree hadn't checked on her right when she did, 
If she had gone in even 10 minutes later, Ashley would have 100% died. Wow. No doubt. Her sister oh. saved her life. My gosh. Her sister oh. absolutely saved her life. So Stacy doesn't know all of this is going on in Ashley's hospital room. Sure. Stacy probably thinks that she's getting away with it again. I know. This is crazy. Well, and she looks like the sympathetic mother oh. who's like, oh, please give me some news about my daughter. Like, I called 911 and blah, blah, right. blah. Nuts. She also probably was not planning on Brie going in there. So anyway, she has no clue what's going on in Ashley's hospital room. And she has put on a pretty good show for everyone so far. Mm-hmm. Hysterically crying and demanding to see her daughter. As she was trying to visit Ashley, Detective Spinelli arrested Stacy for the murder of David Castor and the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. So this is getting really long, so I'm going to kind of breeze through the rest of this. Okay. Back at the house, police were scanning up and down to try and piece together what had actually happened here. Mm-hmm. When they looked on Stacy's computer, they discovered portions of the suicide note. It was written in multiple pieces over the course of several days, and there were actually two drafts of it along with the completed one. Wow. She had all this time to think it through and say, this is nuts. I'm not going to do this. Oh, my gosh. What stood out the most to Detective Spinelli, your jaw's going to hit the floor, was the repeated use of the word, quote, antifree. Oh. Antifree. Where had he heard that before? I know when he questioned Stacy Castor earlier that month, and he right. thought that she'd made like a Freudian slip and said, when I poured the antifree and like cut herself off, uh-huh. she wasn't stopping herself mid-word from confessing. She legitimately thought it was called antifree. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. She, she spelled it wrong every time in the note. She thought it was called, oh my goodness. Doesn't it have a, it's, it's labeled. Isn't it what? a beautiful thing though when someone tells on themselves, <laughs> when they've pooched it real bad, they've yeah. done some bad stuff. Yeah. And then they tell on themselves unknowingly. Yeah. So believe it or not, Stacy maintained her innocence. At this point, with the shocking revelations found in Ashley's suicide note, she now had come to terms with the fact that her beloved firstborn had killed both of her husbands. Oh, of course she came to terms with that. Hopefully, I mean, you know my sarcasm, but like Stacy, everybody (laughs) knows that all of this was her at this point. It's so obvious. So she was indicted on three charges in December of 2007. One count of second degree murder, one count of attempted second degree murder, and one plot to present a forged will. Wow. District Attorney William Fitzpatrick was the prosecutor on the case. The trial began in January of 2009, mm-hmm. almost nine years to the day since Michael Wallace had died. So, once again, not going to spend a ton of time on this, but if you have time, watch the trial. Hmm. It is unreal. Yeah. Fitzpatrick opened up with questioning Ashley Wallace, who testified against her mother. She recounted Good. the truth as best as she knew. That her mother had killed her dad, her stepdad had tried to kill her, and then tried to frame her for murder. Wow. She did her best to give every detail. Then it was Stacy's turn. She got on the stand and talked about how Ashley Wallace was an unstable train wreck who hated her stepfather and wanted him dead so that she could have her mom and sister all to herself. 
Wow. She said that Ashley had years of resentment just bubbling up inside of her over the fact that her dad favored her sister. So when she was 12 years old, she poisoned him with antifreeze and threw some rat poison in for good measure. And she was dead serious. Wow. So watching this part of the trial is actually incredibly heartbreaking because the cameras would keep zooming in on Ashley while her mom is lying about her on the stand saying these things. Yeah. And she's like crying and like shaking. It's really, really, really sad. And like, (sighs) this is the woman who's been her best friend since, since she was born. Right. They've been best friends. Right. As far as Ashley knew her whole life. Oh my gosh. Poor Ashley. I just can't even, can't even believe it. Right. The cross-examination should be mandatory viewing for anyone who watches true crime. Hmm. So William Fitzpatrick absolutely lit the courtroom up and he grilled Stacy to a crisp. Yeah. He was literally screaming at multiple points and it was magical. <laughs> but Stacy did not budge. They also presented all of the relevant forensics evidence and their theories surrounding David's death and then Stacy's response to realizing that she was getting caught. Mm-hmm. So... As far as the plot to present a forged will, what had happened was that David Jr. had sued Stacy mm-hmm. after he realized the will gave Stacy everything. Sure. She brought in some friends who testified and said they both witnessed David and Stacy sign the will that left everything to her. Once everything started coming out, these people came forward and said that they'd lied. Wow. They said that they saw Stacy sign the will shortly after David's death. They knew that things had been hard for her, so they lied and said that they'd witnessed the signatures from both of them before David had died. Since they cooperated with the investigation, they were not charged with anything, so. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, they very easily could have been and probably should have been. They very easily could have been. But they lucked out in the fact that this was so crazy. Well, and that's also like a pretty smoking gun, too. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, we both lied. Hey. Yeah. This is why we did it. Yeah. But she came to us and just asked us, could you just do this? And we felt bad for her. So we did. So on February 5th, 2009, three weeks since the trial began, the jury had reached their verdict after four days of deliberation for the second degree murder of David Castor. Stacy was found guilty. Yes. On the attempted second degree murder of Ashley Wallace, Stacy was found guilty. Yes. Ashley was able to give a victim impact statement. And in it, she said, quote, there are so many things that she has ruined. She'll never be able to see Brie graduate. My father will never walk me down the aisle. She'll never get to see her grandchildren. All these things she took away from me, Mm. end quote. She also said, even though I hate her, I love her at the same time, end quote. Stacy was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder, 25 years to life for the attempted murder, and mm-hmm. one to four years for the forgery. She wouldn't be eligible for parole until 51 years had passed. Wow. Stacy would be 92 at that time. Yeah. The judge told her that she was in a class all her own, and he did not mean it as a compliment. Yeah. Wow. Stacy was serving time at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County. While many didn't see a point in trying her for Mike Wallace's murder, some detectives were still pushing for that. And remember how I mentioned that Stacy's dad, Jerry, had passed away after some time in a hospital, like weirdly after he was about ready to be discharged because he was recovered? Uh-huh. Turns out Stacy was seen entering his hospital room with an open can of soda that she gave him. 
And it was shortly after he drank that soda that he took a steep decline. Are you... What? And you want to take a stab in the dark at who had full control over her father's will? Oh my gosh. Stacy. That is crazy. That's... What? She killed her dad, most likely, allegedly. What? Can you wrap your mind around that? No. I literally cannot fathom it. So detectives also wanted to look into that because it did seem to them very highly probable that Stacy had something to do with it. But she ordered to have her father cremated after he died. Hmm. So we'll never know that for sure. Sure. In a final twist of events, Stacy was found unresponsive in her cell in June of 2016, and she passed away from a cardiac event at the age of 48, never seeing her daughters again after the trial. Wow. Unreal. So Ashley and Bree are doing well from what I could find. As soon as their mom was hauled off to prison, the two girls were left with only each other. Yeah. Since they lost their mom and their dad in this whole mess. From what I could find, as of 2020, Ashley was doing well and credits regular counseling sessions with her success in working through the trauma that she'd endured for so many years. And so I'd like to end with something that Ashley said in an interview on the day that Stacy was set to be sentenced. Quote, After my mom is sentenced today, I'll go back to my loving home with people who care about me. I'm going to do good things in the world, despite your making me, in every sense of the word, an orphan. Mm. End quote. I got a ton of my information from a book called Mommy Deadliest by Michael Benson. He gave super deep dive backgrounds into each person in the story and into just about every single square inch of this story as it unfolded. So I definitely recommend giving that one a read. Mm. I'll link that and I'll also be linking Stacy's cross-examination video because it's iconic and everybody needs to see it. <laughs> yeah. And that is what I have for you this week. I... I am flabbergasted. That is. That's a mom. A mom. That is crazy. Remember at the beginning where she was like, as soon as she was born, that was my purpose for Mm -hmm. life was to take care of her. And they like actually were together all the time (sighs) and they laughed and they had a great time. What could possibly possess somebody? I cannot buy into self-preservation being more powerful than a mother's love. Or, yeah. a, or a father's love, a parent's love. Right. I cannot buy that. That's very yet, hard for me. That's what this is. Is It's such a deep, uh, just monstrous level of, oh, well, I'm the one that needs to make it through this, not her. Mm. That's crazy. I need, I need it to be <sighs> the weight of all of this to not be on my shoulders mm-hmm. anymore. So I'm going to pass it off. To my daughter. Oh, I didn't put this in the story, but remember how she told the detectives that she thought that David got the idea to drink antifreeze from watching 48 hours. Mm-hmm. So that was another very famous antifreeze poisoning case mm-hmm. that was not featured on 48 hours at that point. Oh, she made that up. She had read about it, but at that point it hadn't been hmm. featured on 48 hours. So they're like, She's just looking for anything. She she wow. would lie about anything if she could. Wow. So I, I feel bad oh. for them. Yeah. I just feel really bad for Ashley and Bree. I hope they're doing well. Yeah. From what I saw, they were okay. But it sounds like they're okay. But I mean, you you don't you don't just like up and move on 
from all that. That's a lot of trauma. It completely changes you forever. And there's the general trauma of just losing a parent. Mm -hmm. And then even to a certain degree, obviously depending on the relationship, losing a step parent. Mm -hmm. But then when, when everything comes back around 10 times worse, because it has to do with your other parent Mm -hmm. being the one who actually causes it. And then they try and kill you. Yeah. Poor or, Ashley. Or in oh Bree's case, gosh. your sister, which yeah. is still just as horrifying. Right. Like, oh my goodness. That is. Watching those two oh. comfort each other at the trial will bring any nation to its knees. It is mm. so gut-wrenching. Yeah. I'm very glad they have each other. Well, And one thing that was very sad is that Ashley later learned that her mom didn't look at her one time while she was testifying, while oh. Ashley was testifying. She said her mom refused to look at her the right. whole time. And she testified for like hours. She was on the stand for a long time. And her mom didn't even Man. look her way. Uh, that's just sad. Yeah. This is a, oh. this is a yeah. one of a kind story, yeah. really. Well, and it even goes back to the very beginning when you said Stacy was 18 and Mike was 24 and, It was this question of, is this going to be a story filled with bad decisions? And unfortunately, not in the way that I initially thought. Mm -hmm. uh, It definitely was. Like, it's just filled with bad decisions and and sad decisions. And Mm -hmm. people just making the worst. And, and, And in some cases, not even necessarily like intentionally bad. Like, there were just maybe two quick decisions in a couple scenarios and here Mm -hmm. and there. But it all turned out what I am thankful for is that it sounds like the truth ended up coming out, at least enough of the truth coming out to convict somebody who was actually at fault. Mm-hmm. It's just sad to know that there's all that stuck in these two other girls' lives. I know, forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is, and that's really sad. Oh, man. Sorry, this one's a hard one to end. It is a hard one to end, but we are going to end it. Thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Um, That one's all three. That one blew my mind in so many ways. Mm. That's the most bonkers story I think we've done so far. Um, it's a wild one. Yeah, that one is wild for sure. Uh, if you don't mind, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and let you leave a five-star review as well. Those reviews help other people find this podcast. You can also follow us on social media at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok, and also on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And they can also connect with us. Uh, how else my love? We are officially on Patreon. You can follow the link in our bio on Instagram or in our about section on Facebook, and it'll take you there. Otherwise, you can just download the app or go on to the Patreon website and search This One's a Doozy podcast. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing. Patreon subscribers also get access to polls where you can help us decide on episode topics, as well as our charities that we're going to be giving to each month. That's awesome. Lastly, you can also connect with us over email. This one is a doozy at gmail.com with your suggestions, feedback, anything that you might have. And with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thanks, guys. Bye.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.